Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features, get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book The Origin of Wealth. The book attempts to answer one of the most important and oldest questions in economics, what is wealth? How is it created, and how does it grow? Let's hear a story first. On a field trip to a remote village in Kenya, Eric Beinhorker, the author of this book came across a Maasai elder. The elder brought Beinhok home and asked him about his financial strength. How many cattle do you own? asked the elder. None, Beinhorker replied. The old man looked regretful and confused. He felt sorry for the guest's poverty and wondered how such a poor man could afford to travel so far and have an expensive-looking camera. Later, when talking about his family, Beinhorker casually mentioned that one of his uncles once owned a herd of cattle. At that moment, the old man no longer looked confused. He finally understood that the guest from afar was able to travel because of his rich uncle. This amusing misunderstanding made Beinhorker realize that different people have different definitions of wealth. The Maasai measure wealth by the number of cattle. You might measure wealth in dollars, euros, pounds or other currencies. In the early days of human society, salt, seashells, tobacco, and sugar were all used to measure wealth. But wealth in these cases whether measured in physical or monetary terms is measured in quantity. But Beinhorker points out that wealth can also be measured in terms of economic complexity and diversity. For example, let's consider the wealth of the Yanomomo, a hunter-gatherer tribe that lives along the Orinoco River on the border between Brazil and Venezuela. Their annual per capita income is about $90. This is considerably less than New Yorkers' annual per capita income of $36,000 in 2001. Put another way, New Yorkers' income is nearly 400 times that of the Yanomomos. So we can see that there is a massive gap between the Yanomomo and the New Yorkers in terms of wealth. There is also a huge difference in terms of the types of things the two groups can buy and use. Retailers often use stock-keeping units or SKUs to measure the number of different types of items sold. For example, five types of blue jeans would be five SKUs. By that measure, there are no more than a few thousand SKUs in the Yanomomo economy, compared with tens of billions of SKUs for New Yorkers. So the wealth gap between Yanomomo and New Yorkers is not just nearly 400 times in number, but millions of times in terms of economic complexity and diversity. Beinhorker points out that the Yanomomo's wealth level is similar to that of our ancestors 15,000 years ago. That means it took 15,000 years for human wealth to grow from thousands of SKUs to tens of billions of SKUs. But what is striking is that for most of these 15,000 years, the increase in human wealth was so slow that in 1750 the world's GDP per capita had only reached $180 barely twice the level of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. In the 250 years since then, however, the world's GDP per capita has increased 37-fold to $6,600. In wealthy cities like New York, 
the GDP per capita is even higher. More than 97% of human wealth has been created in the last 0.01% of history. Hearing this, you may wonder why is there an explosion of wealth? What forces have driven this explosion in wealth? The origin of wealth answers these questions. The book traces the history of economics and explains the forces behind wealth growth through the lens of complexity economics. In this bookie, we will unlock this book in three parts. Part 1, Traditional Economics Doesn't Have a Good Explanation of the Origin of Wealth. Part 2, Understanding the True Origin of Wealth Through Complexity Economics. Part 3, The Evolutionary Forces That Drive the Creation of Wealth. Over the past few decades, economists have become less and less trusted by the public. A poll conducted in Britain posed the question, when the following groups of people talk about their field of expertise, which ones do you trust the most? Politicians came in last with just 5% of the vote, while economists did not do much better, coming in second from last with 25%. As the bookie of good economics for hard times explained, economists are not trusted because the pseudo-economists have damaged their reputation in the media. But Beinhorker argues that economists are not trusted, because traditional economic theory is full of unrealistic assumptions and highly idealized models that fail to explain actual economic phenomena. So, does traditional economics offer a good explanation of this book's fundamental question about the origin of wealth? Again, the answer is no. Why is that? Let us briefly review the various attempts to answer this question in the history of economics. Let's start with Adam Smith. He was the first one to have a significant impact on the development of economics. In his famous book The Wealth of Nations, Smith answered two questions. The first one was related to the origin of wealth or how wealth is created. The other question was about how wealth is distributed. These became the core questions that economists attempted to answer over the next 300 years. How is wealth created? According to Smith, wealth and economic value arise from human labor. People take raw materials from the environment and convert them into things that humans need through labor. Smith also believed that the secret of growing wealth is to improve labor productivity. The more bowls a potter could make in an hour, the richer he became. The improvement of labor productivity depends on the division of labor and the consequential labor specialization. Smith found that in a pin factory, if there was no division of labor, each person could produce only 20 pins per day, but if there was a division of labor, each person could produce 4,800 pins per day. This is how labor division could help improve productivity. However, for a long time after Smith, economists ignored the creation of wealth and only focused on the distribution of wealth. They assumed that all kinds of goods already existed and then studied how to allocate limited resources. It's worth noting that the distribution of wealth doesn't mean a person or organization is responsible for allocating all wealth. It's about how the market, the invisible hand guides people to trade and lets the resources flow to where they can be used most efficiently in order to realize maximize the total wealth of the society. 
Why then do so many economists ignore the crucial question of wealth creation and growth? It is because the core ideas of traditional economics constrain them. Traditional economics thinks that the economy is a closed equilibrium system. What does that mean? It means there is an equilibrium point in the economy, such as a price point in a transaction at which the demand for a product equals the supply. When supply and demand reach equilibrium, the market clears, and there is neither a shortage nor a surplus of products. Even if the market is not in equilibrium initially, price will guide the supply and demand relationship to equilibrium as a natural equilibrium mechanism. This is like throwing a ball into a bowl. The ball would roll back and forth for a while, but eventually, it would stop at the bottom of the bowl and sit still. When traditional economics established the core idea of equilibrium, it left out some of the most interesting and crucial questions, such as how new wealth was created. By definition, an equilibrium system is a static state, whereas growth implies change and dynamics. Besides, the equilibrium system also assumes that the total amount of resources in the system is constant, the total amount of wealth is constant, and value can only be transferred from one object to another. This cannot explain the increase in wealth. Economists have long recognized that equilibrium theory fails to explain the dynamics of the economy. To bridge the gap between theory and reality, traditional economics has introduced exogenous variables which are factors outside the system that can disrupt the system's equilibrium to explain growth and dynamic change. Typical examples of exogenous variables include changes in consumer tastes, technological innovations, government actions, and the weather. They allow economists to attribute cyclical economic fluctuations to mysterious external forces and stock market crashes to poor consumer confidence or the impact of breaking news. These are the traditional economic views of the origin of wealth. But is the economy really a closed equilibrium system? Is this a good explanation of the origin of wealth? The equilibrium model was developed by the 19th century economist Leon Walras. Equilibrium is a concept he borrowed from physics, specifically from the first law of thermodynamics. This law states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed but can only be transformed from one form to another, and equilibrium is the state of conservation of energy. In an economic system, equilibrium refers to a fixed amount of wealth randomly distributed among people with different preferences, who can then trade with each other to reach an economic equilibrium. After Walras, however, the second law of thermodynamics was developed, stating that entropy, a measure of disorder or randomness in a system is constantly increasing. This has since become the supreme law of nature. Complexity economics argues that the second law is a better model for describing economic systems. You might say that thermodynamics laws are completely unrelated to economic systems, so how can they be discussed together? According to complexity economics, the economic system is not an abstract model but an actual physical system composed of matter, energy, and information, and its operation needs energy support, so it follows the laws of physics just like other things. Confusing as it might seem, entropy as mentioned in the second law of thermodynamics is a daily phenomenon. We can see it happening with mountains eroding, 
steel rusting, and houses becoming untidy. Under this premise, if the economy is regarded as a closed system, it will go from order to disorder as is stated in the second law. That means it will have less pattern and less structure, and the final equilibrium, means the system's death. If you want to fight entropy and establish order, you need to put energy into the system. For example, when you use energy to organize your house, it gets in order. When a colony of ants converts food into energy and then into the labor of building the nest, it establishes order. It takes energy to build order, which means that only open systems with a constant energy input can fight entropy and create more order, structure, and complexity. Therefore, an economic system with increasing complexity cannot be a closed equilibrium system. It must be an open system. So that's part one. We reviewed the various attempts in the history of economics to solve the origin of wealth and found that economists ignored the problem of wealth creation for a long time after Smith. This is because the core idea of traditional economics that the economy is a closed equilibrium system cannot explain wealth growth. Complexity economics overturns the equilibrium theory and argues that economic systems obey the second law of thermodynamics. Under this premise, equilibrium means the death of the system, and the dynamic economic system with complex structure is not a closed equilibrium system, but an open system. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.